Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. The growth of our science and education will be enriched by new knowledge of our universe and environment. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained. It's an old story, or at least old as far as cinema is concerned, which in the grand scheme of history actually isn't very old at all. But it's been retold so many times that fact and fiction have melded into one another, and it's difficult to know what is real and what is exaggeration. Some film scholars even call it cinema's founding myth. It took place on a winter's evening in December 1895 on the Rue des Capucines in Belle Epoque, Paris. Two brothers from Lyon, Louis and Auguste Lumière, had reserved a room of the Grand Café to show off their new invention, the cinématographe. With rows of chairs set up facing a canvas screen and the huge camera clattering away in the middle of the room, the Lumière brothers projected 10 silent, 50-second moving pictures to the crowd. It was the first public film screening in history. Now, it certainly wasn't the first time that people had tried to make photographs move. In the 1880s and 1890s, several inventors, mostly from France, had been working on an early film camera. Frenchmen like Émile Renault and Léon Bouly had succeeded in creating smaller devices that displayed successive images. And in 1894, one year earlier, across the pond in New Jersey, Thomas Edison had debuted the kinetoscope, which also displayed moving images. But whereas the Lumière brothers' moving pictures were projected onto a screen for a group to behold, Edison's kinetoscope had to be viewed by one person at a time through a peephole. Fierce businessman that he was, Edison never forgave the Lumières for stealing his thunder. And devices like these, of course, have a long history in the tradition of the camera obscura and the magic lantern. But on the 28th of December, 1895, the first public audience had assembled to view movies together. By all accounts, they were delighted, shocked, enthralled, and when one particular film played, terrified. This film, Arrivée d'un train en gare à la Ciotat, shows the everyday action of a train pulling into a station. But it's filmed from a clever angle that creates the illusion of depth and perspective. As the myth goes, as the image unfolded, audience members cried out and even jumped up, afraid that the train would run out of the screen and hit them. Most film historians now argue that audiences wouldn't have been quite so naive, and they would have known that they weren't really in danger. And we now know that Arrivée d'un train didn't actually play on that first night, but was introduced into the program a few months later. But the accounts of the cries and the jumps appear to be real. And I still love the story, because as banal as the image of a train arriving at a platform may be to us now, that visceral reaction to an image coming at you from a screen 
is universal and persistent. It makes me think of all the times I've jumped out of my skin from a jump scare in a horror movie. And we're far from the innocence of 1895, and I'm a cynical film scholar with a penchant for horror films who feels like she's seen it all. But the right shot, filmed with the right kind of inventiveness, skill, and empathy, can incite a psychological, emotional, or even physical response. We know it's not really real, but it touches us all the same. They didn't know it at the time, but the Lumiere brothers were sitting on some of the most powerful technology that would shape French and global cultures throughout the 20th century. In the late 1890s, the Lumieres went on an international crusade, displaying their short films to captivated audiences across Europe, the Americas, and even Japan and Australia. But in actual fact, the brothers thought that the cinématographe would just be a passing fad, a novelty that would briefly supplement their main business of selling photography stock. Because they thought that the film camera would only have a few good years of money-making potential, they refused to sell anything. Instead, they created an international franchise where they rented their cameras out. If the device had any long-term value, they thought, it would be as a scientific tool for measuring biological processes or chemical reactions. Though they were the first filmmakers and the inventors of the technology of film, the Lumiere brothers weren't really interested in the craft of it, and certainly not in its narrative and creative possibilities. But someone was at that first public screening in the Grand Café on that winter's evening in 1895 who was interested in these possibilities. Georges Méliès. Unlike the Lumiere brothers or Thomas Edison, Georges Méliès wasn't an inventor or a scientist at all. He was an aspiring painter, a theatre director, and a magician. At the time, he ran the Robert Houdin Theatre in Paris, named after the famous French magician Houdin, who would later become the namesake for Houdini. At this theatre, Méliès put on plays in the fairy, fairy tale tradition that was popular in France at the time. But he also used carnival tools, like trapdoors, smoke, mirrors, and double-sided cabinets, to create on-stage effects that made audiences think that the actors had disappeared, had their heads chopped off, or been transformed into animals. This was theatre and illusionism rolled into one, and people loved it. But it was when Méliès finally got his hands on a knockoff of the cinématographe from the UK, because no matter how much he begged, the Lumières would not sell him one, that he truly began to elevate his magical effects to artistic innovation. In 1896, Méliès built himself a glass studio on his family's property in Montreuil, to the east of Paris, and began employing actors from the Robert Houdin and ballerinas from the Folie Bergère to act out brief but fantastical scenes. He used stop motion to film a woman seated on a chair who has a sheet thrown over her and seems to disappear when it's removed. He filmed fairies, ghosts, demons, skeletons, and even Jesus Christ being transformed into a beautiful woman, using substitution splicing and double exposure to create what seemed like magical effects. In almost all cases, he cast himself in the starring role. He began screening the films at his theatre and then branched out to other venues under the banner of his new company, Star Film. The Lumières had seen their invention as a piece of scientific technology, 
Méliès was the first to see cinema for what it would come to be known as, Le Septième Art, or The Seventh Art. For most of film history, scholars have described Méliès's cinema as primitive and fundamentally different from the, quote, narrative cinema that would come later. Many describe it as filmed theater, for after all, the camera doesn't move, but is fixed with a static view of the stage, where the actors are responsible for creating all the movement. But tonight, I want to challenge that idea. Méliès didn't have access to film sound, CGI, zoom, or even cameras that could be moved around. But his films tell creative stories that not only deserve to be analyzed in as much complexity as we accord modern cinema, he also made films that serve as a blueprint and an inspiration for the cinema that was to come. In the late 1890s and early 1900s, Méliès was working with basic film technology and without any of the cinematic vocabulary that future filmmakers and audiences would become so fluent in. After a few years, he faded into obscurity and his work wasn't recognized as an important contribution to the evolution of cinema for many decades. Most of his films were lost during this time. And this is the basis of Brian Selznick novel, Selznick's novel, The Invention of Hugo Cabret, adapted by Martin Scorsese in 2011 as Hugo, in which Méliès has ended up, unknown, a modest toy maker specializing in automatons. But despite this, Méliès's cinema was far from primitive. And one of his films in particular is undeniably a work that shaped the world. In 1902, Méliès released his most ambitious, visually complex, plot-driven film, A Trip to the Moon, or Le Voyage dans la Lune. It's also by far his longest, at 12 minutes, which was incredibly long compared to the one to two minutes which was standard for the time. And we're not entirely sure because so many of his films have been lost, but we think that Le Voyage is around Méliès's 400th film. Inspired by both Jules Verne's uh, From the Earth to the Moon and H.G. Wells' The Men in the Moon, or The First Men in the Moon, Le Voyage dans la Lune's plot seems pretty straightforward for us, but it was extremely elaborate for the time. Dressed in wizard-like robes, a group of astronomers gather to listen to Le Professeur Barbon Fruilly, or Professor Messybeard, who is played by Méliès himself. Barbon Fruyer proposes to build a spaceship and travel to the moon. When the bullet-shaped wooden capsule is complete, six men led by Barbon Fruyer climb inside and are launched by a cannon towards the moon. As the craft approaches the moon, a human face appears on its surface, and it is a cream pie, if you were wondering. Down on the moon's surface, the men crawl from the ship, beholding an image of Earth laid out before them. Much has been said of how closely the shot resembles and prefigures William Anders' iconic photograph, Earthrise, of 1968. Then, as you would, they fall asleep on the ground and dream of astrological formations transformed into women. The Big Dipper, made out of cut-out stars, each with a ballerina's face in the centre, and Selene, Greek lunar goddess, draped over a crescent moon. When they awake, the astronauts explore a mysterious cave where everyday objects like their umbrellas are transformed using stop motion into enormous mushrooms. Here they encounter a human-insect hybrid creature, or a selenite. Upon attacking it, the men discover that these creatures explode on impact, but then a group of selenites storm the men and carry them off to their leader. 
Brought before the Selenite throne, Professeur Barbon Fouillé uses his new combat skills to pick up the king and cause him to explode in a puff of smoke. He then escapes with his men and a captured Selenite back to Earth. The spacecraft lands back on Earth in the ocean and is collected by a ship. The men return home to a triumphant reception, a jubilant parade and a statue of Barbon Fouillé. There are many reasons why Le Voyage dans la Lune is a work of global significance. For one, it was the first science fiction film. It was also the first international blockbuster. But what we're interested in tonight is something a little more specific, because it's also the first moon movie. Or to put it in more sophisticated terms, Voyage launched a long line of films about lunar exploration and lunar mystery that endures up to this day. These films interrogate the very essence of what it means to be human, to coexist with nature, and to strive towards the unknown. Le Voyage dans la Lune was the foundation of what I would like to call lunar cinema. Now, there are plenty of lists that come up if you Google moon movies or films about the moon, but lunar cinema hasn't been used as a term before. Films about the moon are wildly varied in subject matter, genre and context. Under the label lunar cinema, I'm not just thinking of films depicting journeys to the moon. I'm also thinking about all the many drama, horror, fantasy and comedy films in which the power of the moon exerts its influence over human beings, sometimes causing them to go mad or to transform into monsters. There may not seem to be much of a link, for example, between 1922's German vampire film Nosferatu a loose adaptation of Dracula, and 2017's Hollywood blockbuster First Man, starring Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong. But please indulge me, because I think that a lunar history of cinema, beginning with Le Voyage dans la Lune and continuing right up to today, is an illuminating prism through which to study the evolution of film. Perhaps more than any other kind of film, lunar cinema shows us what we strive for, what we dream about, and what we're afraid of, and reveals the nature of cinema, not only as a creative medium, but as a powerful technology. So tonight, I'm going to lead you through this lineage of lunar cinema and show you the probing existential questions that films about the moon allow us to ask about the world and about ourselves. We're going to stray far from Montreuil and far from 1902, but we're not going to stray far from Le Voyage dans la Lune, because no matter what lunar film we're looking at, Voyage remains as an influence and a guide. So when you think of the moon, what do you think about? I wanted to know, so I did a miniature and not very scientific study, asking my friends and family and Twitter followers to tell me what came to mind for them when they thought of the moon. And this is what they came up with. If you're not familiar with the joy of the word cloud, the more frequently a term was mentioned, the larger it appears in the image. You can see that I've been honest and I haven't hidden any of the data because cheese features so prominently. Uh, and you can see on the right that more than one person honestly answered that when they think of the moon, they think of butts, <laughs> which is fair. If you're wondering why the TV show The Mighty Boosh features so prominently, there's a recurring bit in which they spoof Melies's voyage with a face covered in cream hanging in the sky and talking about what it's like to be the moon. So it's actually a very fitting reference. 
You'll see in some of the smaller texts some references to specific works that people associate with the moon, such as Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's Le Petit Prince and R.E.M.'s Man on the Moon. Uh, I was pleased to see Wallace and Gromit's A Grand Day Out figures several times, um, which may also have something to do with the cheese reference. But it's the largest words and the most sweeping themes which stood out to me and which I think really do tell us a lot about what the moon symbolizes for us. Werewolves, femininity, lunacy, the Apollo project and the moon landing, menstruation, tides and the full moon, cycles in all their forms, witches. Reading the history of cinema through lunar motifs offers a new way of understanding the entangled relationships between science and culture, technology and art, the real and the imagined, our desire to control nature, and our eternal fascination with the unknown. So I'll lead you through the history of film using this concept of lunar cinema as a guide to explore cinema's long-time fascination with the moon and to reveal how each of these themes is already present in that very first science fiction film of all time, Voyage. So let's start with perhaps the most obvious theme, technology and innovation. For lunar exploration is a quest that captured the human imagination for centuries, though it seems like a quaint kind of dream to us now. Putting a person, or rather a man, on the moon was the ultimate show of scientific progress, technological innovation, and it was tied up in powerful narratives of discovery and hope. Dreaming about a journey to the moon and what humans might find there was a dream about achieving what was then impossible, pushing the frontiers of human knowledge and more sinisterly, potentially claiming new territory for Earth. And it's important to remember the parallels that could be drawn during Melies's time between dreams of inventions like a spaceship and the hopes placed in this other new technology whose potential was only just being discovered, cinema. And it was Melies who discovered many of the technical possibilities, what we would now call special effects, of cinema, from stop motion to multiple exposures to time lapses and dissolves. None of this had been done before. And so voyage treads new terrain in more than one sense. In fact, in 1906, in the journal La Revue du Cinéma, Georges Méliès himself said, I can say without bragging, since all those in the profession are well aware of this, that it was I myself who successfully discovered all the so-called mysterious processes of the cinematograph. He wasn't known for his modesty. <laughs> Though many people dismiss Méliès's films as being fixed and static, Voyage actually uses the limited technology available to tell a complex visual story. So we begin with this rather flat shot, taken side on of the spaceship, where we see the astronauts enter the pod from the side. Keep in mind that film cameras couldn't be moved at this time. They were heavy and awkward and very noisy and delicate. And Melies had actually bolted his to the platform facing his stage, kind of like a spotlight pointed at a theater stage. But that doesn't mean he couldn't create the effect of movement. For in the next shot, we've swiveled 45 degrees, and now we're standing behind the cannon with the rocket's trajectory towards the moon mapped out before us. When the cannon goes off, we see the beginning of this journey from our vantage point on Earth. The camera doesn't move, but through editing, passing from one vantage point to another in a split second, we do. Then we adopt an entirely new perspective 
seeing what the astronauts themselves would see as the spaceship hurdles towards the moon, the face on its surface becoming clearer and clearer the closer we come. In the shot, the camera still isn't moving. Instead, Melies rolled the moon prop towards the camera on a, on a little trolley, splicing the human cream pie face in in the editing stage. And then all of a sudden, we are no longer in the spaceship, sharing the astronaut's perspective, but separated from it, watching it land in front of us. So we're in some kind of unknown position in space. There's an existential shift in perspective that occurs in this moment. And then we shift again, finding ourselves on the moon's surface and re-watching that moment of impact as the rocket slides in to the screen in front of us. It's a repetition of what we've just watched happening from space, but viewed from an entirely different vantage point. This complex series of shifts in perspective allows us to feel as if we're moving. We watch the journey begin from the viewpoint of a bystander, we travel with the astronauts as they approach the moon, and we watch them arrive first from behind them in space and then again from a position on the surface. Of course, in reality, we're seated and mobile in front of a screen. But through the magic of mise-en-scene and editing, we also travel to the moon. This is 1902, and it's really not basic stuff. In fact, it has often been, often been lunar films which experiment with new techniques and the physical possibilities of the film medium. Voyage was merely the first in a long line of large budget films that used outer space to stage complex visual compositions that play with new film technologies. Of course, perhaps the most famous film footage of all time was received by satellite only a few kilometers south of here at Honeysuckle Creek on June 21, 1969. But lunar films are also at the origin of several film genres. Voyage was the first sci-fi, as I mentioned, Multiple horror subgenres are dominated by lunar motifs, and even the most revolutionary music video was a lunar film, as a young Michael Jackson was transformed into a dancing werewolf in 1983's Thriller, released only two years after the launch of MTV and launching a wave of narrative music films. Lunar cinema has also always been at the forefront of advances in special effects. A wave of these came in the 1970s, especially with Star Wars, but also with Alien, creating visual landscapes that would have been unimaginable only a few years before. And in the contemporary era, it continues. Lunar films are renowned for their use of advanced CGI, think of Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, and especially for 3D technologies, such as in Alfonso Cuaron's Gravity. It seems space has always been the ultimate arena in which to construct cinematic worlds and experiment with and show off new film techniques. But perhaps the most visually impressive lunar film actually precedes gravity by 50 years, Star Wars by 10, and even the moon landing itself by one. Stanley Kubrick's 1968-2001 A Space Odyssey. Of course, Kubrick had a more complex camera than Melies did, and he also had access to sound and colour and an array of special effects but he was also working with far less technology than we have in Gravity or Interstellar. The late 1960s was an incredibly charged moment for space exploration and for the advancement of cinema as an art form. And Kubrick's opus does some incredible things with a film camera and a zero gravity environment. So lunar cinema is about the frontiers of scientific exploration, about humankind's urge to progress and evolve beyond the realm of the familiar, 
and about developments in film technology and technique that help us understand this advancement. But the themes of technology and exploration are also very closely linked with another theme that is at the heart of both lunar cinema and lunar exploration in general, the nation. It's difficult to think of the space race without thinking of the Cold War. It's difficult to think of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin's visit to the moon without thinking of the US flag that they planted there. It's even difficult to think about the dish without parks, much, much to the dismay of Honeysuckle Creek, or to think of Apollo 13 without Houston. And lunar exploration, both in 1902 when it was still a dream, and 1969 when it became a reality, is very much linked with the display of national power, with military advancement, and with questions of international and global security. But a particularly nefarious side to this national dimension is that the moon is so frequently perceived of as a territory to be conquered. We still talk about colonizing the moon, or more often these days, Mars. Even in Despicable Me, the ultimate villainy and the most impressive display of force is to steal the moon using a giant shrink ray. And when asked earlier this year what he plans to do with his billions of dollars, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos replied that the best possible use of his money would be to colonize space. I think that says a lot about him as a person. And this brings us to an underappreciated and subversive aspect of Méliès's Voyage dans la Lune, and that's its colonial critique. It's always been difficult for the Western cinematic traditions to turn a critical eye on themselves and their colonial histories. France and French cinema in particular have taken a very long time to come to terms with their colonial past and with the lingering effects of empire on peoples and cultures around the French-speaking world today. In Méliès's time, it would have been particularly difficult to openly condemn French imperialism. After all, the French colonial empire was at its height between the 1870s and the 1930s, the second largest in the world after the British, and comprising 12.9 million square kilometers and 110 million people. And Méliès wasn't a radical activist by any means, but he was, criti he was critical of the ironic cruelty of colonialism. And though it isn't often read as an anti-colonial film, Le Voyage dans la Lune was actually intended as one. It isn't difficult to see the colonial parallels in Voyage's depiction of French explorers making a long journey to claim distant territories. And while the film was originally silent, of course, as the spaceship approaches the moon, it was frequently accompanied by a pianist playing La Marseillaise, the French national anthem, and you may have noticed it playing in the bit I played you before. But the colonial parallels are most obvious, of course, in Barbon Fouillier's interaction with the native inhabitants of the moon. It is symbolic that the astronaut's first contact with the selenite results in a violent encounter and ultimately the selenite's death. The representation of the selenites as creatures with humanoid bodies, but insectoid faces and behaviors conforms to disturbing historical portrayals of native peoples as savage or even subhuman. And when a horde of selenites bring the astronauts to their leader, Barbon Fouillier not only commits another murder, but also disturbs the social order of the selenite civilization and takes a selenite hostage and transports it by force back to Earth. Over history, this process of domination has often been read as heroic. The selenites are portrayed as relatively dangerous and even monstrous, and Balbon Fouillier's killing of the selenite leader can be read as an act of self-defense. 
At least this is how it was often perceived by viewers of Voyage at the time. But Melies actually intended a more nuanced reading. Because when Baron Fouillier returns to Earth and to France, he is celebrated with a parade and a statue in his likeness, with a Latin inscription that reads Labor Omnia Winkit, or Work Conquers All. The phrase is a popular motto around the world, and was actually adapted from Virgil, who was writing at the time in favor of Augustus Caesar. So in one light, the main character of Le Voyage, who don't forget was played by Méliès himself, is a triumphant hero, the pride of France. But in another, one that Méliès confirmed as his intention later in life, he's a violent conqueror of foreign lands and people, an image that is only made more powerful by the fact that the enslaved Selenite is dragged in front of the parade by a cord around its neck. And these themes of domination and violence lead us to one of the most important motifs in lunar cinema, the monstrous. Because whether you see the Selenites or Barbon Fouillis as the villains of Voyage, there is a strong undercurrent of horror and monstrosity running through the film, which has come to define much of lunar cinema since. Linking back in with the technological advancement theme, the monstrous creature in lunar films is often a mechanical one. On the left here, you see the computer HAL from 2001, A Space Odyssey, who turns on the human characters and locks them out in the vacuum of space. And very often in lunar cinema, there are monsters out in space, either from space, as in Alien, or of our own creation, as in 2001. And often there are monsters on the moon, sometimes even human ones. In 2012's Iron Sky, a group of astronauts planting an American presidential campaign flag on the moon discover that a colony of Nazis have been living on the dark side of the moon and plotting their return to Earth to conquer it since 1945. <laughs> um, please do not interpret this reference as a recommendation to go and see Iron Sky. It is truly bad. <laughs> and lunar films often reveal how humans themselves can be monstrously cruel. In 2009's Moon, which is brilliant, a corporation has created human clones to mine resources on the moon's surface, using them as slave labor and then leaving them to die. Perhaps more compelling, certainly more terrifying, and apparently more in the forefront of people's minds if we go by our word cloud, the moon also creates monsters on Earth, often transforming them from human beings. In the case of many lunar films, the monsters are within our midst, and sometimes within our own bodies. You may remember that the largest word in the word cloud was werewolves, and that shouldn't come as a surprise. After all, werewolves are intimately linked with the moon, controlled by it, and even physically transformed by it in its full form. And werewolves are particularly compelling monsters because they're contained within and burst forth from human bodies. They are a radical, violent incarnation of the moon's powerful effect on our physical forms and of the destructive forces of nature. But the eerie pull of the full moon is not only a feature of werewolf films. As you can see in these posters, the lunar monstrous is also a dominant motif in films about vampires, especially given the fact that the sun destroys them and therefore the moon is their logical companion. And it's often used just for general creepiness and dramatic silhouettes as you can see in this iconic gif from The Nightmare Before Christmas. The monster sometimes lives on the moon, but more often the, monster con the moon controls monsters on Earth. And there's a mysterious magnetic pull 
exerted by the full moon in particular, that drives monstrous creatures to act. Often this places human beings in peril, but it also reveals the monstrous within. And I would argue that the most fascinating example of this isn't necessarily the werewolf or the vampire, but the witch. That iconic cinematic image I mentioned of the creature silhouetted against a giant full moon is perhaps most often associated with witches or the monstrous feminine. It's been played for various effects in wildly different genres across the ages and around the world. Here you see it range from the whimsical in Hiromasa Yonebayashi's 2017 Mary and the Witch's Flower from Japan, for horror in Benjamin Christensen's 1922 Haksan, Witchcraft Through the Ages from Sweden and Denmark, and for children's comedy in Kenny Ortega's 1993 Hocus Pocus from Disney. But the Lunar Witch is most often associated with horror. The Witch is a powerful woman that, science, that society cannot control whose powers are fueled by the dark forces of nature and amplified under the full moon. Often the witch is created when she is expelled from, or perhaps more terrifyingly, chooses to leave normal society and becomes an object of transgression and fear. She is both sexual and repulsive, unnatural and intertwined with nature. In 2016's The Witch, for example, a Puritan English family is expelled from their 1630s Massachusetts village and sent to live alone in the woods. There, the, film, the family's paranoid obsession with a witch that they believe lives nearby and their fear that their teenage daughter, Thomason, will be perverted and turned into one herself causes them to spiral into self-destruction. Ultimately, Thomason is transformed... Oh, I'm sorry, spoiler alert. It's really good. Please go and see it anyway. Thomason is transformed into a witch by her family's self-perpetuating fear that she is one. The fear of an asocial, sexual, powerful woman leads the family to create a monstrous witch out of their innocent child. And unsurprisingly, this ultimate transformation takes place in the light of the full moon. Which brings us to a broader examination of the lunar feminine. And if you'll recall, many of the largest words in our word cloud related the moon to femininity and not just in the monstrous sense, but also in relation to fertility, menstruation, and emotions. The Wiccan triple goddess cycle makes this link explicit. The moon's monthly cycle experiences three stages. The waxing crescent is known as the maiden, the full moon as the mother, and the waning crescent as the crone. This neo-pagan tradition folds in the symbolism of moon cycles, fertility cycles, and life cycles into one. And there is definitely no shortage of lunar films that draw connections between the moon and woman. Some are quite highbrow and early, such as Fritz Lang's 1929 film Frau im Mond, or The Woman in the Moon, but others are very strange and very pulpy and very bad, <laughs> such as 1953's Cat Women of the Moon, 1987's Amazon Women on the Moon, and 1960s rather lazily named Nude on the Moon. All of them deal in stereotypes about femininity, and it's important to acknowledge that very few, almost none, of these lunar films are made by women. Most <laughs> lunar cinema is directed by men, for a number of reasons that we can discuss at the end, if you like. But whether it's done artfully or trashily, this linking of moon and woman is a long narrative tradition. Percy Shelley drew the parallel in 1820 when he wrote in his poem, The Cloud, that orbed maiden with white fire laden, whom mortals call the moon, 
glides glimmering o'er my fleece-like floor by the midnight breezes strewn. And I'm sure you can think of many other examples. And of course, decades before the witch and catwomen of the moon, the lunar feminine was present in Méliès's film. Though the moon face is the most iconic image from Le Voyage dans la Lune, a close runner-up is the dream image of Céline, Greek goddess of the moon, portrayed by a ballerina from the Théâtre des Folies Bergères. Uh, there were no credits at the time, so we don't know who she was exactly. Who appears in the astronaut's dreams, draped over a crescent moon. Though this is a brief image in a much longer film, it's a particularly important one for Méliès, because Voyage and many other Méliès films were a part of an artistic trend that was very popular in France during the Belle Époque, known as the Féerie, or fairy tale, movement. In Féerie, plays, dances and films, the lithe and beautiful female body often appears to fly or float, and women are portrayed as fairies, nymphs, goddesses, and even celestial bodies in themselves. I'm sure you recognize some of these fairy images, especially those used to advertise dance halls, such as the Moulin Rouge. In her book on Georges Méliès, Elizabeth Ezra writes that perhaps the most important recurring motif in Méliès's cinema is the amazing flying woman. The fairy movement is very much of the Belle Époque. And Le Voyage dans la Lune is very much of that moment as well. But the fixation on the female body as the site of unknowable mystery, forbidden sensuality, and dangerous enchantment is very much an eternal one. In the 117 years since Le Voyage dans la Lune was released, a vast lunar cinema has evolved around the world. 1902 was a long time ago, and Voyage seems quaint by comparison with most films but it contains all the ingredients of lunar cinema that was to follow, pushing the boundaries of film as a medium and as an art. Le Voyage dans la Lune captures the essence of the early days of cinema. It was both a technological marvel and an artistic achievement. Here, cinematic exper experimentation on the one hand and lunar exploration on the other are actually two sides of the same coin. Both reflect back at us our fascination with redefining the limits of what is possible and with exploring our dreams 